1: Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams.
2: Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour week. Get together like this uh, every weekend on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Now, we have an engineer goes by one name, just Gabe. That's all he needs. Uh, Very few people can be identified by one name. It's terrific. And Andrew Hrdliska does the producing. uh, And he has produced Adam McClendon in this first segment. Uh, he is an afro- associate dean and associate professor of Bible and Christian leadership at Liberty University. Uh, his new book is out, Approaching the New Testament, A Guide for Students. Adam, welcome to Orlando, and uh, I'm looking forward to our chat. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you and your audience as well. Uh, before we dive into the book, I am fascinated by Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. What's going on these days up on your campus?
3: I'd say that it is a fascinating place. And, you know, unfortunately, social media and all the different articles and things that exist out there don't do justice to what God is doing here on our campus. Largest Christian university in the world. Spectacular our school divinity has seen the largest incoming class it's ever seen. We're growing. And the people God brings here are students from all different walks of life all different ethnicities, and they're all coming here to study a variety of different programs because they want to be trained to be champions for Christ and go out into the world and be excellent in whatever their vocation is
2: and promote the glory of God. And so it's, it's competitive in football, basketball, all the sports, it appears to me.
3: Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's it's fun because a lot of the sporting events on campus are free. So you can go check out softball. And you got Dot Richardson over there, and then the basketball program and everything that uh, Coach McKay is doing—it's phenomenal. Coach Freeze is doing a tremendous job of really building a nationally competitive football team. So, if people don't know about them—they need to check them out.
2: Adam, I didn't know that uh, Dr. Dot Richardson's up there. Uh, she's from yes? she's from oh here. my goodness, she's from here in Orlando, and just an absolute champion in every way. That's fascinating.
3: And if you ever hear her speak, I don't know if you've heard her speak before, but you talk about motivating, that lady will light you up and get you excited about whatever it is she's talking about.
2: Yeah, that's so good to hear. So, Adam, tell me about this new book, Approaching the New Testament. Why did you write it, and, and why is it important?
3: Well, here's the reality, Pat. that more and more people are biblically illiterate, meaning that they, they know about concepts regarding God. They might have grown up in church, but they're not really sure, how do I read a book that? thousands of years old, and what relevance could it possibly have in my life? And a lot of more introductory books to the New Testament, they're really written more towards scholars and more technical aspects of really what the Bible's about. And we wanted to produce an introductory, approaching the New Testament type of book that would allow students who are just hungry to know more to walk into this environment that's thousands of years old, and say, how is this still relevant, while not jettisoning the basic, intentional, contextual meaning that it had in the first century. So that's what the book's about. We really try to start off every chapter with a connection point, of showing the relevance, and then we try to walk through highlighting the original context and how this book still has application for us today, as we would have got.
2: Well, let's start. Uh, Matthew and Mark uh, were written um, by... Russell Small. Uh, who is Russell Small, and how would you uh, summarize Matthew and Mark?
3: Yeah, so uh, we, he, he, his pen name is Russell. We call him Rusty up here. So Rusty is a pastor here in Appomattox, so just outside of Lynchburg. But he's also one of our full-time professors, brilliant mind. He's involved in church revitalization all over, really, the East Coast, but primarily the state of Virginia. And what he does in this context is helps you to see the trajectory and the feel of Matthew and Mark, these two gospel writers who are really writing from a very similar perspective about Jesus as the Messiah and why this is relevant to you. I mean, we come to the Bible often with questions of who is this guy named Jesus. We know it would have been told in the media sphere or in church on Sunday morning, but the Bible is a display of God revealing himself to us. And so in Matthew, for example, he hits on many of Jesus' primary teaching themes. you got the Sermon on the Mountain. you got all these mountain episodes where Jesus is explaining who he is and what a kingdom of God is and what a kingdom ethic is. And so Rusty breaks that down for the readers there. And then you get into Mark, which is a gospel really about Jesus as the Son of God, as the Christ, the Messiah. And here's what's interesting that gets highlighted there is, Throughout the first half of the book, the word Christ or Messiah isn't even used. As a matter of fact, the only people that recognize Jesus as being spectacular, the Son of God, are not his disciples. It's not the religious leaders. It's actually the demons and this Syrophoenician woman in chapter seven. But then in chapter eight of Mark, you have this tremendous pivot where Mark has I'm sorry, that where Peter has that, that great confession. He's asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? Which is a question all of our audience should be asking themselves. Who do I say Jesus is? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And that's where the word finally appears again. And from then on, Jesus goes, you get it. And he begins to show how as the Messiah. He is going to die for the sins of the world and rise again victorious so that we can
2: have eternal life. Let's move on to uh, uh, the book of Luke. And uh, here we meet Dottie Rhodes. Tell us more. So Dottie is one of our adjunct professors here.
3: She has a brilliant mind. She's actually just now finishing her Ph.D. in theology and apologetics. And Dottie's going in really to show how this kingdom that God has given us starts off. There's that famous parable the mustard seed. It starts off with a small beginning that Jesus is planting and beginning to establish his kingdom, which is the rule and reign of God here on earth that will come to fulfillment at the end of the age in his ultimate kingdom that we call heaven. And she's showing how Jesus is the son of David who's come to establish this kingdom that God has promised from long ago. And that's what Luke really reveals to
2: us. Let's move to the book of John. And we meet Kara Murphy here. Uh, I want to hear about this.
3: Well, I mean, Kara is a brilliant—she's actually heads up—she's what we call a subject matter expert. She heads up our online New Testament classes, so she helps oversee those and helps train budding theologians and students from all over the world. And she's writing in John about this reality that Jesus was the Word made flesh. And he comes on the scene, and there's all these signs given in the Gospel of John. And these signs are all given, there's several of these sign episodes, and each of the sign episodes are unique, and they're all given in order to demonstrate that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. I mean, that's the central question for us, really, and that by believing in him, we have salvation through his name. And so that's what
2: Kara brings out there in the Gospel of John. Adam McClendon is our guest. Uh, He's in Lynchburg, Virginia, at Liberty University. And uh, this fascinating book is out, Approaching the New Testament, a guide for students. And and aren't we all students? Uh, Adam, here is Gary Habermas, and he does a chapter called A Case for the Resurrection. Uh, Can you tell us more about that?
3: Yeah, so a lot of people don't know uh, Gary, maybe in person, but he's been uh, depicted in some movies. Matter of fact, The Case for Christ. He was the theologian that was sought after in that movie to actually help convert the main star of the movie to Jesus. And so Gary has been teaching on the resurrection for years. He is one of the world-leading experts on the issue of the resurrection. So people contact him from all over the world. We just ask him if he'd be willing to contribute. He was kind enough to do so. just helping our audience go, if this is the central issue that the Bible is presenting, that Jesus rose from the grave, then we need to help them have some type of evidence, not only historically, but also in the pages of Scripture, to give them confidence that this is not just a myth, not just something made up. This literally happened and is the central focus of our hope for new life after death.
2: Let's move to uh, the book of Acts. And a fellow named Adam McClendon um, got involved on this one. Uh, Tell us about your chapter, Adam.
3: Yeah, so I love the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a, I often misunderstood, but what I try to do is just break this down for the audience. And Acts 1-8 is really the theme idea there in the book. And so really the rest of the unfolding of Acts is a unfolding of Acts 1-8. Now what we have to understand is Acts is actually the companion piece to the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both books to Theophilus. And so we got to take those into, into consideration together. And what we see in Acts is that, continued fulfillment of the unfolding of God's plan, his kingdom that was talked about in Luke. So where by the beginning of the book, you see them all huddled together in Jerusalem. They're a little afraid. They're not sure what's going to happen. By the end of the book, the church has exploded. It's gone to the ends of the known world at the time, and it's flourishing. And there's tens of thousands of people that call themselves Christians or followers of Christ by the end of the book. It's a beautiful depiction to help your audience understand the ebb and flow of that beautiful narrative God has given us.
2: The book of Romans comes next. A. Chadwick Thornhill, what a great name that is, by the way. Uh, (laughs) uh, Tell us about Romans.
3: So Romans is a book there that when your audience gets it, a lot of times Romans is misunderstood because it is heavy theology, meaning when we say the word theology, it's words about God. And Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11 is really establishing a theological framework. And then chapters 12 through 16 tell us how to live in light of that framework that God has given us. And what Chad does is a beautiful job of showing that these New Testament writers are writing usually with, a, with an audience in mind. And a lot of times if you read carefully, you'll see that interaction. And so he brings that interaction out in a way that few authors I've ever read do. That is a gem of a chapter And in showing how the way we live is a reflection of and flows out of what we really believe about God.
2: Um, I've read uh, two books recently uh, uh, from famous uh, uh, pastors, and they've both said that their favorite chapter in the Bible is Romans chapter 8. Your thoughts? Oh,
3: if, if someone in your audience isn't familiar with that, they, they just need to pull over right now to a gas station or pause, whatever it is they're doing, and, and open up the Book of Romans chapter 8. It is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in human history. Now, it, it, and people, secular, Christian, irrelevant, really see the Bible as a beautiful piece of literature. We just believe it to be the Word of God as followers of Christ. Now, Romans 8, though, depicts this glorious reality. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, In a world full of guilt and shame and difficulty and strife, it's a liberating truth. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, he talks about how this pervasive, unending, ever-entangling love of Christ does not let us go, even though we don't deserve to be held by it, right? And so there's this almost poetic, ending to the chapter where he talks about neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And in a society that is so desperately hungry and thirsty to be loved, I mean, our depression rates are going through the roof, everything else, this chapter reminds us that love is available to everyone who wants to receive it through Jesus. And that chapter is just one of the most encouraging chapters in the entire Bible. And it is cherished. When when the Lord got hold of my life in high school, that was the chapter I would go to in my seasons of depression and discouragement, just to be reminded that there's hope.
2: Adam, we got to take a break here. Um, uh, But I would like to ask you about uh, Jerry Falwell senior. Uh, is, is his legacy still alive? Is, do you still sense Dr. Falwell's presence?
3: We do. Matter of fact, uh, you know, there's been some articles written recently that are trying to undermine that. But There's a lot of great things here. We're working on a Jared Falwell senior museum and people that lived and labored alongside of him. His vision is being rekindled, that his vision was to take men and women, regardless of wherever they're coming from, to be trained here to be champions for Christ because Christ redeems every vocation, not just church vocation. And so we're producing Christian doctors and lawyers. We're producing Christian scientists and Christian English teachers and Christian missionaries. And that vision, whether you're in a convocation, it's being shown on a video, it's talked about in classrooms, and now we're getting ready to build a multimillion-dollar museum You know, people come on our campus, they'll walk through that legacy that Jerry Falwell Sr., through many of his audio tapes and other things, will guide them through that museum. It is going to be spectacular. Yes, it is
2: alive and well. Adam McClendon is our guest. His book, Approaching the New Testament. We've got another segment with Adam. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back.
1: More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now,
2: here's Pat. Well, we are back here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, our guest, Adam McClendon, the book, Approaching the New Testament. Well, uh, Adam, we now meet a gentleman named Leo Purser. And Leo does triple duty, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Uh, fill us in on Leo. What's he up to?
3: So Leo is a New Testament professor and scholar. He's also an elder in a local church, loves Jesus deeply. He is writing it because, remember, most of the letters in the New Testament, they're a they're tinsel. They're these almost personal correspondence that different writers, and he, he's focused more on the Pauline. Epistles, And so you got this incredible early church leader named Paul, who was actually a murderer, who gets converted, has this dramatic experience, and comes to believe that Jesus is really who he said he is. And then he becomes this great advocate for Christianity and actually ultimately becomes one of the significant leaders in the early church. So he's writing all these letters. So what Leo does, along with some other authors, is begin to unpack and explain why Paul is writing to these churches. And what's the central idea? And how is what these churches struggled with still relevant to us today?
2: Now it's time for Ephesians. And we meet Benjamin Laird. What's up here? Yeah. Yeah. Ben's another New Testament scholar who's writing. He is
3: in one of Paul's epistles as well. So, you know, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, several of these are written by Paul. And he's highlighting these rich theological truth that, that we, apart from Christ, are dead in our sin, but because of the grace of God, we've been made alive. And so what does that look like? What does that mean? What's Paul doing there in that letter? And, and by the way, if you haven't read Ephesians, for your audience, <clears throat> by the end of the book, it's, it's one of the most unusual components where we see about putting on the full armor of God, which is actually about putting on Jesus and living out the Jesus life. That we have. And so, what does it look like to live like Jesus and live for Jesus? That's what Ephesians is unpacking for.
2: Adam McClendon is our guest. We're talking about his book, Approaching the New Testament. Well, A. Chadwick Thornhill comes back again. We met him in Romans, now we meet him in Philippians. How about that, huh?
3: Yeah, and in Philippians, something interesting that your audience may not know about is in chapter 2, there's actually an ancient hymn that's given there. And so what Chad does is he takes this incredible ancient hymn that they have and shows how it's central to understanding not only who Jesus is, but also understand why Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and again, while that's relevant to us today, so that's what he's unpacking there.
2: Now it's time to move to Colossians, and here comes Eunice Chung. Tell us more.
3: Yeah, Eunice Chung is finishing a Ph.D. in biblical spirituality. She's a brilliant young female scholar who deeply loves Jesus. And in Colossians, she is really highlighting there the royalty and the majesty of Jesus. And that's really the the central theme of the scriptures. It's all about him. And Colossians is highlighting that for us.
2: It's time now to get to first and second Thessalonians. Jeffrey Dixon handles that one, right? He he does. He
3: does that one, and then we'll see him again in Revelation. Tell us more
2: about those and two he, books.
3: Yeah, and what he's doing there is is really helping the reader understand that these books are written to provide encouragement and hope of the reality that Jesus is coming again. And in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again, our hope is not in this world. And he does the same thing in Revelation, that the hope that we have is not in this world. Our hope is in the world to come. That's the big objection a lot of people have to Christianity. They go, why is there suffering in this world? Well, because there's sin. And that's why we need a Savior, and that's why we need the hope of a kingdom to come. And so that's what Jeff really brings out as a pastor in 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, and even again in Revelation, one of the most unusual books in the Bible.
2: 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, Mark Allen and Jack Carson.
3: Yeah, Mark is another brilliant theologian, and elder of local church. Jack is as well. Jack is finishing his doctoral degree from an overseas seminary, and both of them are writing on these pastoral epistles is what this is called. This is really when we talk about how, how should we do church together, these three books are highlighting that. And so they help show God's heart for when the body of Christ gathers together in worship, when we have this thing called church gathering. What is the intention? What's the goal? And so they're helping to mine those riches out throughout that section.
2: We've come to Philemon <coughs> and we meet John <coughs> Cartwright. <coughs>
3: Yes, and as you mentioned, John's dad, some of your, your audience may even be familiar with him, but John's here. He is just a great friend, a theologian. He also has a great heart for local church. And John, there is it's one of the more unusual books in the New Testament. It's a very tiny book that's dealing with a runaway slave. And this runaway slave is being sent back to his master by Paul, and it's a really way for the Apostle Paul in the first century, when by some estimate there was a large percentage of the... Population that were actually enslaved. It's a way for him to undermine the cultural institution of slavery while acknowledging the cultural institution of slavery. And he's trying to show how in Jesus he subverts these cultural tensions that we have and he provides freedom and this glorious relationship. And so it's really a beautiful story of friendship and obligation and commitment, and so that's what John brings out in that letter.
2: It's time now uh, to get to Hebrews. Matthew Kimbrough uh, does that fascinating book. Yeah, and Hebrews is, a lot of people believe
3: a sermon that was written in the first century, and it highlights the supremacy of Jesus. And in that process, it also brings up several of of the significant factors of Hebrews are the warning passages. So, there are these warning passages there. And what Matt does is show how not only is Jesus still supreme, but also as followers of him, there are expectations, and we need to be checking and examining our lives to make sure we're really genuinely born again if we claim to be.
2: I now, uh, our guest is Adam McClendon. We're talking about his book, Approaching the New Testament. <clears throat> now, I come to maybe my favorite book in the New Testament, the book of James. A Chadwick Thornhill returns, and this time with Emily Page. Yeah, Emily
3: Page has been one of his graduate assistants in the past. She is finishing a graduate degree and is brilliant. And they work together on James, a very practical book, a very proverbial in a sense, axiomatic. It's got a lot of different practical elements. And again, what James is highlighting, and I think Chad and Emily do so well, is that if we say we believe something, is that evident in our life? And so true faith always manifests itself in true action. So we can't say we're followers of Jesus and not be reflected in our life. What does that look like? Even so much as caring for the poor, uh, loving our neighbor, and those elements, the widows. and And so Chad and Emily weave together those elements and the practical application of them.
2: Adam, you took on first Peter. Tell us more.
3: So here's the reality. If, we, uh, if, if we're watching a movie for the first time, and we don't know the ending. It, it's really suspenseful. But once we've seen the ending, we know what's going to happen. And it kind of relieves some of the tension. And what Peter is doing here is reminding us that we know the end of the story. You might be experiencing a, a diagnosis, some medical issue, maybe it's cancer, a death of a loved one and you're discouraged and depressed, and you're experiencing maybe it's a divorce, whatever it is the audience is going through, Peter reminds us that this world doesn't write the end of the story Jesus does. And the end of the story is a glorious kingdom at the end of the age where he gathers all of his children together in that kingdom. And so Peter is writing to an audience stuck in what feels like an impossible situation to remind them that there's hope and that hope is coming. So that's what that book is about.
2: Now, uh, second Peter is Chris Hulshoff. Uh, what what does he write? Yeah, yeah. And so Chris,
3: another colleague, is, is writing and Second Peter, a book that begins to shift and really also kind of thrust us towards the book of Revelation. Peter again is writing to an audience in need who needs hope and some reminders about Jesus. But each of these letters are written from a unique perspective, and so Second Peter is sitting on a different angle to the same audience, just reminding them on the new circumstances they're facing that that hope is still available
2: to them in Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam McClendon has been our guest. Uh, check that book out, Approaching the New Testament, a guide for students. We've got more after this. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will be right back.
1: More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat.
2: Adam McClendon, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Approaching the New Testament, A Guide for Students. Well, we go from Lynchburg, Virginia to Tallahassee, Florida, Jamil Drake is there, assistant professor of religion at Florida State University. Uh, His book is out. It's called To Know the Soul of a People, Religion, Race, and the Making of Southern Folk. Jamil, welcome to Orlando. I'm glad we have uh, time together. How are you?
4: I'm doing very well, and thank you, uh, Mr. Williams, for having me.
2: How did this book come about?
4: Well, this book came about actually... uh, beginning uh, in my graduate days uh, at Emory University when I was uh, writing the dissertation uh, beginning in 2012, and I actually finished uh, 2015. But it really emerges out of a kind of an interest that I had in terms of how African-American religion is actually talked about or studied in broader American uh, society. So there I stumbled on a group of... uh social scientists in the early 20th century who were studying uh, the religious cultures of African-American farmers and other laborers uh, in the agricultural fields and small towns in the lower South. And uh, it was that interest that, um, you know, kind of produced uh, this uh, book uh, to know the soul of a
2: people. Uh, The introduction before the black underclass concept uh what are you writing in that intro
4: yeah so the introduction is basically that you know when we think about the sort of uh black underclass concept you know this is a idea the black underclass that emerges uh in uh after world war ii and so you get uh policymakers who are talking about you know the kind of uh black underclass and talking about their uh, various sorts of problems, particularly in urban ghettos. Um, and what my book is saying is that this idea um, coming from these social scientists who are talking about African-American religion, particularly in the rural South, in, in abject poverty, they come up with this idea of the folk. And so what they're saying is that, you know, uh, this, this folk, when we look at their religious practices, They're deficient, they're lagging, they're backwards. And so what I'm arguing is that before we go to this kind of black underclass concept and these ideas of pathologizing the sort of black lower class and urban ghettos uh, after World War II, that when we look at these early uh, 20th century social scientists, they're looking to rural Southern culture and black rural Southern culture, and particularly their religious practices, to say, hey, look, you know, these deficient cultures have roots in, in the South. And so that's what I mean by uh, this sort of before the, uh, before the Black underclass concept. And I should say that I'm actually critiquing uh, how these social scientists are discussing, are talking about African-American religion in the rural South in the first half of the 20th century.
2: Your first chapter is called "Moralizing the Folk: The Negro Problem, Racial Heredity, and Religion in the Progressive Era." Uh, fill us in on chapter one, Jamil. Yeah, so the uh, first chapter talks about um, a social
4: scientist by the name of Howard Odom, who actually uh, grows up in um, you know, kind of the uh, northern Georgia, grows up on a dairy farm, but you know, um, you know, in the in the early 1900s, he uh, goes to uh, graduate school and studies uh, psychology. And for him, he's interested in solving the kind of what was called the Negro problem uh, after Reconstruction. It was called the Negro problem in terms of how do we think about uh, these, you know, recently freed enslaved people as well as their children? How will they fit into Sort of American policy or American democracy, right? And so this is what's called the kind of the Negro problem. So he goes to uh, the North from the South and he studies in a graduate school in the psychology department and he writes his dissertation basically on uh, the folk, the folk spirituals of African Americans in the South. And actually, the title of the book, To Know the Soul of a People, actually comes out of the first line of his dissertation. And basically what he's arguing is that, you know, these sort of, you know, African-American folk spirituals, they're beautiful, um, they're lovely to hear. But when we do a kind of a psychological study, we're able to see that, you know, the root of these, uh, these folk spirituals basically come out of the sort of hyper-emotionalism of a group of people, um, African-American sort of laborers, who actually, um, that contributes to their pathology, that contributes to their inability and not wanting to work and stuff like that. So while in some ways, you know, the songs are beautiful, if we trace the sort of psychological roots of these songs, we see a very deficient culture, a hyper-emotional culture, uh, among Black people who have no morality, and so in some ways I'm kind of critiquing that um, and saying that no, you know, when we think about African American religion in the South, particularly from workers, there is in some ways a kind of a moral uh, compass. And again, this is kind of you know the precursor to the kind of civil rights movement that emerges out of the South. So some of these rural folks that you know Howard Oder and many of these social scientists are talking about with their so-called efficient religion, can not account for the John Lewises, can not account for the Fannie Lou Hamers, who are also kind of coming of age in the kind of early 20th century in the South, before they start the civil rights movement in the kind of 50s, 60s. Um, so, yeah, so that's what that first uh, chapter is
2: about. Jamil, I want to go to Chapter 2, Assimilating the Folk. White Southern Liberals, Revival Religion in Regional Isolation. Tell us more.
4: Yes, so this is a group of, um, you know, uh, white sociologists out of the kind of University of North Carolina uh, uh, social science department. And these these sort of uh, social scientists, they go to the sea islands. And, you know, they're studying the kind of the religious cultures of, you know, African Americans uh, uh, in the Sea Islands. So they're studying. They're studying their songs. They're studying their beliefs, and basically, they're studying it to kind of you know tell and explain to the American government that you know we can actually help. We can actually help solve the economic problems of these uh, of these small independent land owning farmers uh, in the sort of Sea Islands. So in some ways, basically, as they're trying to think about the kind of abject poverty of these, like, small, low, uh, land-owning uh, farmers, um, they also talk about their, again, their deficient folk religious cultures. Um, and I will say this, though, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, to make these social scientists sort of uh, complex, they're in earnest in trying to solve certain kind of Social, racial, and economic problems that perennially plague these sort of farmers, particularly in the Sea Islands. But they really get their religious cultures wrong by saying that they're outside of mainstream culture, that they're backwards. And again, um, I'm kind of critiquing that, but at the same time, uh, these social scientists are in some ways uh, trying to solve the economic problems. And they think that if you solve the economic problems in the Sea Islands, then they will have a more modern mainstream American faith. And um, I'm using that chapter to sort of critique that idea among these earnest sort of liberal white Southern social scientists who are studying in the sea Islands.
2: My guest is Jamil Drake. We got another segment with Jamil, his book to know the soul of a people. And speaking of books, uh, my latest book is out. It's called every day is game day. I, teamed up with a local pastor, Mark Atterbury, and we wrote a devotional, daily devotional. Uh, Every story has a sports theme. And then we go from there and uh, uh, teach a spiritual lesson based off that sports theme. I think you'll enjoy it. So when you go up to Amazon (coughs) to order Jamil Drake's book, To Know the Soul of a People, uh, get a copy of uh, Every Day is Game Day. I, I, I think you'll be pleased with it. And one other reminder, folks, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. You can be a big help. Go to the website, OrlandoDreamers.com. <clears throat> OrlandoDreamers.com. Just check in with us and tell us. Good idea. I'd like to be part of this. Tell us more. Uh, OrlandoDreamers.com. We're back with Jamil Drake here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando.
1: More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's
2: Pat. Well, we're back here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Jamil Drake is our guest. He's a assistant professor of religion at Florida State University. We're talking about his book, To Know the Soul of a People, And, Jamil, we have arrived at your third topic, medicalizing the folk, superstitions, family, and germs in the venereal disease control program. Uh, What's this all about?
4: Yes, I'm looking at uh, social scientists who are uh, affiliated with uh, the historically uh, African-American college that still exists today, Fisk University. And they're working with the uh, Ju- Julius Rosenwald Fund, as well as the United States Public Health Services, uh, the government, uh, the medical government organization. And they're trying to control uh, the problem of uh, syphilis and other germ disease, diseases uh, in the uh, in the rural South, and particularly in Macon County. And this is before the uh, kind of infamous kind of, uh, you know, Uh, Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And so what they're trying to do is control and trying to solve this uh, uh, syphilis sort of um, uh, and other germ issues among uh, tenant farmers, among black tenant farmers and sharecroppers. And basically they use the sociologist of this university to basically talk about how these diseases are not a result of, you know, sort of these kind of inherited bad racial traits, but that these diseases are a marker of just being outside of modern medicine and being in abject poverty. And so, for them, they're trying to, you know, call attention against the backdrop of the New Deal government to basically call for more, um, you know, more economic aid that can actually solve the kind of health crisis in these sort of rural communities. But they also stumble across these sort of, or upon these sort of bad religious beliefs, these folk religious beliefs. And here they're talking about conjure that they call superstition. And they're also looking at certain African-American churches in these rural areas, particularly Macon County, where they are, uh, for in their minds, they have these sort of anachronistic or, you know, uh, irrelevant social taboos, like they're they're against card playing, they're against, you know, uh, chewing gum, or they're against baseball. You know, these things are considered sins, but it doesn't really translate in terms of solving the kind of health crisis. So again, they're, they're, they're recording folk religion to say, these are these deficient religions, but once we take care of the economic crisis, then, in some ways, it would spill over to modernizing their faith. That will bring it on par with the kind of modern study of disease, where they can go get uh, vaccinated. They can, you know, go get. Uh, they can understand the nature of germ disease, how it's, you know, between contact between people are are more right. And you know, they're trying to kind of modernize the faith, but at the same time, they miss valuable lessons in terms of midwives who are not, who, you know, in the community who are doing more than just delivering babies, but who are also taking care of familial needs. They also miss the, 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 the important part of how, how spirit, how spirit these dreams and visions and even conjure is about power and helping, you know, farmers navigate the kind of the terrain of pro as well as abject poverty. So while they get some things right, They miss the total significance of African-American culture, uh, particularly Protestantism in this case, and conjure among rural African-Americans in Macon County against the backdrop of the New Deal government.
2: Now, uh, Jamil, let's get to your fourth topic. Uh, Saving the folk, cultural lag, and the southern rural roots of the religion of poverty.
4: Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. This looks at this, uh, the kind of sociologist, uh, you know, Gunnar Myrdal, who was the Swedish, actually, he was actually a Swedish economist, and he's being called uh, by uh, the Carnegie Foundation to do this study, which was also called um, the Negro Problem, um, around the time of uh, the start of World War II. And um, basically he uh, reaches out to... uh, both, uh, uh black and white social scientists to help him with this study on the Negro problem that's being funded by the Carnegie uh, foundation of New York and basically he's making a similar argument that look you know when I when I when I travel to the to the south to the rural south and I observe the kind of abject poverty and I observe the kind of uh uh, health conditions, and I observe all the problems that these sort of African American uh, farmers and laborers in agricultural Jim Crow South, when I observe uh, their cultures, um, I'm also sensing a kind of lag, a kind of backwardness, or primitive understanding. And he's clear that it has nothing to do with these inherited race traits like Howard Odom is saying in chapter one. He is saying this is the result of, you know, uh, racial segregation, and this is the result of the uh, economic plight that affects, you know, African-American workers, but also affects the white uh, lower-class populations, too, who are also suffering from some of the same economic conditions as their African-American counterparts. And so basically, he's looking at their cultures, meaning the ecstatic worship You know, whether that's preaching, whether that is, uh, you know, uh, singing. You know, he's looking at spirit possession where people are, like, falling out. And the Swedish economist is actually kind of scared. You know, this kind of worries him because this is kind of, in some ways, foreign to his own kind of uh, enlightenment sort of, you know, uh, uh, upper-middle-class sort of Swedish sensibility. And so he deems these kinds of religious practices as problems, not of certain racial traits, but of problems as the result of poverty. So he wants to kind of, again, like the other social scientists in chapter two and chapter three, he wants to kind of get the government to kind of address these sort of economic situations that he think will help modernize them and bring particularly African American rural workers. In the American mainstream, but again, he misses the significance of the kind of uh, cultural power and the kind of uh, the cultural value of what these religious practices that he deems as pathological in terms of what they're doing. And actually, Gunnar all later later on at the start of the modern civil rights movement in nineteen fifty 1950, in nineteen fifty four, when we think about Rosa Parks or we think about nineteen fifty five. You know the scene of you know Martin Luther King and others from SCLC when they come of age. He actually um, he actually apologizes or uh, recants some of his statements in that early kind of World War II study by seeing the kind of value of religion, particularly as it relates to uh, African American politics or uh, airing grievances for their work in terms of uh, gaining a kind of. Multiracial democracy. So that's what the chapter four is about.
2: Jamil Drake is our guest. He's in Tallahassee to know the soul of a people. Topic five for you, Jamil. Preserving yes. the folk folk songs and the irony of romanticism. What's that mean? Yes, so um
4: this is uh this this work, uh, this chapter actually deviates from one, two, three, and four, and it looks at, you know, uh, folklorists. And so when we think about the term folk, we think about folklorists, and we think about, you know, the likes of Alan Lomax, or we think about, you know, the uh, the baby boomer generation, and they're turning to kind of folk music. You know, I think about the music that my mother grew grew up on, you know, born in 1951, and thinking about the kind of folk revival, folk revival uh, in, in music, uh, particularly when you think about popular music, uh, Bob Dylan and others, right? Um, so I look at the folklorist Alan Lomax, and Alan Lomax is doing something different than the sociologist, where Alan Lomax is you know, working on behalf of the government and working with his father, uh, John Lomax Sr., and, you know, they're touring the, they're touring the rural South and they're getting what they call these authentic folk sounds. And they're, they're, they're by authentic folk sounds. They're not only talking about the blues in the Mississippi Delta, but they're also talking about the spirituals too as well. When you think about the spirituals as coming or emerging from, uh, these songs that are being heard during slavery and that many sort of, Union soldiers um, and abolitionists are recording, you know, during the Civil War, hearing during the Civil War. So, you know, Alan Lomax is doing something different by saying, you know, these songs are not a result of the deficient culture, but these songs capture the talent. They capture the beauty of African-American folk Southern culture. But at the same time that Alan Lomax is romanticizing uh, and celebrating this sort of rich, vibrant, you know, African-American folk Southern culture that he's saying goes back to Africa. And he's doing this in the 30s and the 40s. Um, He's still also saying that, you know, this rich, these people um, who are producing this sort of rich folk culture, they're still disconnected from mainstream modern America. And you and I both know that in some ways, You know, we can't talk about the blues, or we can't talk about the gospel blues, or we can't talk about the spirituals as being isolated or outside of, you know, mainstream modern culture. So while while I credit him for, you know, not sort of reproducing the argument of the social sciences by saying folk culture is deficient African American culture in the South, he still kind of says that they're disconnected from mainstream America and fails to really see the ways in which these sort of African-American rural Southern sounds, how it's sort of impacting, you know, mainstream and popular culture, which is how we get the kind of folk revivals uh, of the baby boomer, the kind of culture generation in the latter half of the 20th century.
2: Now, uh, I want you to get to the conclusion uh the aftermath of the religion of the southern folk. What do you write here?
4: Uh basically it's the um this sort of uh conclusion is basically uh getting at sort of my ultimate goal in writing the book. In other words, it's a study of African American religion through these sort of social scientists and folklores, but in some ways it gets us to think about a broader discussion about, you know, race, class, and culture. In some ways, this book is meant to show how, you know, uh, we as sort of Americans have in some ways uh, a distorted sort of picture of lower-class of lower communities, that they're, that they're in some ways disconnected from mainstream culture, that they lack the kind of uh, culture and moral habits that sort of a part of mainstream culture. So this book is basically it looks at the study of African American religion to see how the to see the roots of the sort of the problem in terms of how we think about race, class and culture and how we denigrate African American as well as low income cultures, such low income communities such as, you know, they don't wanna work or they're just lazy and stuff like that. So this book is trying to in some ways give a history to how, how we kind of talk about these communities, but also as a corrective to say, no, these cultures are very much a part of mainstream America. They do have these sort of moral, cultural work habits if we look at their cultures. And in some ways, it turns the kind of uh, perspective on us, and hopefully it corrects our thinking and how we think about African-American and lower-class communities in our modern society today.
2: Jamil, what do you want your readers and listeners here to take from your book? Yes, in some
4: ways that, you know, um, by focusing primarily on, you know, the cultures are the deficiencies, the, the quote-unquote cultural deficiencies of African-American lower-class communities. It takes our gaze off of other things that are contributing to uh, the the racial and economic problems that perennially plague you know, many uh, African-American and lower-class communities today, such as, you know, policy, such as the economy. And so this book wants to uh, push back against the idea that lower-class communities, particularly African-American lower-class communities, have in some ways a deficient culture. This is not true. Um, But we need to concentrate on broader kind of social political issues that actually you know uh prevented people from being a part of lower class people from being a part of american democracy
2: my guest has been jamil drake we've got to wrap up after this right here on the pat williams saturday power hour this is the new am 990 and fm 101.5 the word in orlando we will be right back
1: More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990
2: and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Well, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend, and we're always so pleased when you uh, join us. Uh, In the first segment, Adam McClendon was there talking about approaching the New Testament. He's at Liberty University. Then Jamil Drake at Florida State University talked about his book, To Know the Soul of a People. And speaking of books, uh, our latest book is out. It's called Every Day is Game Day. Uh, Head up to Amazon and pick up a copy. It's It's a daily devotional. Uh, Every story has a sports theme, and then it leads into a a spiritual lesson. I think you'll find it uh, unusual, uh, but helpful, effective. So uh, every day is game day. Go up to Amazon. Always a wonderful way to order books. We'll see you next weekend here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. In Orlando. Thank you for joining us
1: for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word.